we started into the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13. Um, and there's uh, an occasion for some scary stuff in there. And I think that as a culture, we've kind of become addicted to the next scary thing. Right? Now, if I back up a little bit for some of you that are old enough, I can talk to you about how nervous suburban people were about bloods and crypts after the L.A. riots. And some of you are just too young. You're just not going to know. And we could go further. And does anybody remember Y2K? No? No Y2K? Who can believe we have technology still working after... Like, uh, how about Mayan calendars? Anybody? Like, you've never studied anything from the Mayans. And then... 2012 came around, and you were an expert, right? And then we had swine flu. Is it monkeypox now? I think it just changes animals, kind of like hurricanes change names. And the pandemic, and listen, like real stuff, like 9-11 happens, right? And we, we go to war with Iraq, which is like historically where Babylon is, and then some guy with a comb over and a calculator is saying, we are going into the end times, Right? Like, we live in a place and a time of constant fear. That's definitely not going to work in that. <laughs> it's good. And I think that there's a way in which we can become addicted to the fear. I mean, we watch scary movies with zombies in it because even we love this genre of an apocalyptic ending. And isn't it funny that we almost always believe that it's going to be ourselves in our technology that's going to create our own doom. Isn't that funny? And probably right, you know? And, and so we can be... Uh, now you got it right. Um, see, Ty, this is why you can't leave. Whatever point I was making, just hold it really quick. And then we created our own doom. All right. What do you think now? Is it good? Genie? All right. Genie's good. We're good. All right. So there's this way in which are we not playing bingo with whatever the next scary thing is we got to do? Like, is it going to be a disease? Supply chain issues? Is it going to be a war with Russia or China? Maybe both, right? And, and I think that there's this way in which we can get addicted to the fear or we can have the questions about the future paralyze us in the present. But my argument is going to be even if we don't understand every detail about this text, here's my heart for you, is that I believe that Jesus intends for us to get something from this other than an obsession about fear. Like reading a Tim LaHaye book and being afraid we missed the rapture because all of our family just happens to not be in the house. Like that's not the takeaway. I think that the takeaway is not to be paralyzed, but that Jesus wants us to know about the end so that we will be able to move. That we'll be able to be faithful and if I might even argue this, that, he might, that we might be holy. 
in a wicked generation. So here's the thing. Let's pray, ask for God's help, and then I'm going to do an unbelievably long uh, lead-in, and I'm not going to be able to answer every question about this text. So set your standards unbelievably low today, all right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. And even if myself or all men underwhelm, God, you always exceed expectations. And so, God, I come in faith and in desperation asking for you um, to make this passage clear and the eternal things that you intend for us to walk out of this room with, that we would get it. And so, God, um, would you move the baggage out of the way? Would you move our preconceived ideas and how we've conditioned ourselves? And can we just have your word raw and fresh and new in us today? God, would you come and make your church holy in these last days? God, help us to spread your kingdom to every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is your church. Have your way, God. Be the pastor, be the shepherd, be the teacher. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said... Amen. All right, as a jog, uh, I'm going to go back into what I talked about last week as far as my hermeneutical approach. Hermeneutics is the study of how to interpret the Bible. And here's how I approach texts like this, that there are some things that seem clear and some things that will be left to the secret counsel of God and mystery of God to be revealed in those times. Here's how I'm going to come to it. I interpret the obscure things with the clear things. Like when it is clear that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and that I'm to go make disciples, that's a clear thing that interprets for me what to do with the tribulation and the millennium and all the things that might be for some of us unclear. Does that make sense? We don't take obscure passages of the Bible and then apply them to reinterpret what is clear. The other thing that I would say about this is that the main things of the Bible are the plain things. Everything that you need for life and godliness is plain and clear. Plain and clear. The main things are the plain things. The other kind of hermeneutical approach that I come to this is what my football coach taught me, which is kiss. Keep it simple, stupid, right? And so just kind of stay at it, like kind of straightforward and approach it that way. And so that's kind of going to be my approach. But we talked about this last week, and I think it bears repeating All of us, when it comes to eschatology, which is the study of last things, come with a little bit of baggage. Because there is no other place, maybe, that the church has embarrassed itself more than trying to predict the end. Like Jesus is going to say, no man knows the day or the hour. And then tons of preachers, even faithful ones, are going to believe they're the exception to that rule and take a swing at it. Right? And it gets us into all kinds of controversy. Furthermore, there are churches that though this is a peripheral issue where we can disagree with one another about how all of this is going to work out, we can begin to make this a primary issue and divide from other Christians over it. And so I'm going to ask for you a bit of humility and a bit of unity with your other brothers and sisters in Christ in here who may not see... The book of Revelation, which has the most symbolic um, sayings in it of all the... They may not see it the same way as you. And so there's a place here to be generous to one another. On something that may be just a bit mysterious. So 
my argument last week and my approach was, I think that as a church, it is more valuable for us to prepare to meet the Christ than it is to prep for the Antichrist. I know you've got a doomsday shelter, all right? But I think that we should be preparing to encounter the living Christ more than the Antichrist. We should be concerned more about the mark of the lamb than the mark of the beast. And thinking it's every computer chip that goes into, well, if it does go in your body, I'm going to red flag it, all right? Okay, like, or that we should be thinking about invading the earth with the kingdom of God more than we're thinking about escaping the earth on some sort of highway hymn. We have a great commission to preach the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation. I would say this, our eschatology should be more foundation or more founded on hope than it is fear. Do you hear me? More about hope than fear. I, I talked about last week that because of how complicated or even faithful theologians who know the Bible much better than me disagree on this, we can kind of throw our hands up and say, all right, well, I'm out. Like, I don't want to mess with all that. I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out, right? And, but I, I don't think that we can do that. If we go to the slides, one of the slides in 29.29 talks about that what was written down in Scripture was given to us and our children, I love that, that we might obey them, by the way, Baptists, not just know them, but obey them forever. The Scriptures are a gift to us to know and obey them. Okay, so God gave this to the church, let me narrow it down, to you for a reason. Go to the next passage, which I also want to add and build off of that case. Philippians 1.10 says, So that you may approve what is excellent, that's really great discernment, and so may be pure and blameless. Two aspects about what Christians should be here and now. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Like, so I'm going to take from this, this, this idea from the verse. You cannot live a full Christian existence without a baseline understanding of the second coming. Like, it's essential that you have a theology of the second coming that changes the way that you live, pure and blameless. And without that understanding, you will not live as Christ intended you to live. Are you tracking with me so far? I'll just say, we just, as I come into this, we can't skip it. Now, I don't know where to put this, so I just put it on the next slide. Let's make this thing more complicated. Because God knows that's what we need in life. All right, so there are three, and I would argue more than three. There's a view called preterism, which basically is just rooted in history. They would say every prophecy of Daniel, Old Testament, everything in the New Testament, all of Revelation except for like the last two chapters happened in the first century. Okay, that's preterism, an historical perspective. There's a lot of faithful Christians who are preterists, all right? The next one, which is probably the most predominant view within evangelicalism, has to do, and all of these have to do with the millennial reign in the uh, book of Revelation, okay? And premillennialists are probably most people that you've heard of, and they've got lots of charts, and they talk about the judgment, and, um, and it could come in, and they're basically saying the church age 
then there's going to be a tribulation, and then there's like a rapture, and then there's the millennium, and then there's a second judgment, and then the eternal state of believers and unbelievers um, and, and to judgment. And so many of you, um, even if you've not known it, this has been the air that you've breathed. And really, something that you should know is there's two different views of this. There's a classical version. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Um, and there's a classical version, and then there's what's called a dispensational view of this. Okay? And amongst this uh, is this view has only existed under 200 years. The church has not had this view throughout all of church history, but now it's probably the most predominant evangelical view in America. Postmillennialism is that basically the church age after the resurrection of Jesus has begun and that the tribulation, things that are described here, are extending all the way through that same age. And that's what they say is the millennium. And then Jesus is returning at the end judging the believers. And so millennium's post-resurrection, so that's where post-millennium, thousand years. Amillennial, that awe is like atheist, a-theos, there is no God. A-gnosis, agnostic, there's no knowledge. There is no literal millennium. They're taking it as a spiritual millennium uh, that extends through this age and goes through. And there are variations of these about where do you put the tribulation? Is there a rapture? Where do you put the rapture? Where do you put the judgment seat of Christ? And I put this up there to tell you, I listen to guys that I love that are preachers and they all have a different view on this thing. You know what I mean? Like they, they're going to land differently because some of the passages are mysterious. It's hard, to, and some of them think that they just got it, and I think that they're reaching. All right, let me let me make it a little bit. Let me uh, turn it up just a little bit more, and, and I hope that this actually encourages you. If you don't know what to do with everything, go to the next uh, slide. This is another should be another view of each of these different positions. I can probably post this online. Uh, go to the next one. Um, so the all millennialism all-millennial view, um, was held by theologians such as Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henrik uh, Bullinger, Herman uh, Bavnik, uh, Abraham uh, Cooper, Gerd Haas Voss, Michael Horton, uh, Kim Riddlebarger, and Storm and Sam Storms from Oklahoma. Super famous uh, all-millennial view. Really great preachers. There's lots of these people that are like faithful gospel, unbelievable theologians. Go to the next one. Uh, I put dispy because dispensationalism is a really long word. Dispy, pre-trib, pre-mill, John Nelson Darby. If you have a Schofield Bible, it's a dispensational interpretation or study Bible. Um, Lewis Chafer, Charles Ryrie, great preacher. D.L. Moody, fantastic preacher. Um, Jim Elliott, um, if you've heard missionary missions before, it's kind of a famous name. Hal Lindsey, Jerry Jenkins, uh, David Jeremiah, who I knew before I came to Colorado, who is me, uh, John MacArthur, um, all hold to a dispensational form of pre-trib, pre-millennialism. And there's some faithful gospel preaching Bible theologians in that camp. Go to the next one. Then you can go to a, the kind of a standard pre-mill or what's called classical. Um, Justin Martyr, who I've quoted even in the last four weeks, Irenaeus, Charles Spurgeon, you might have heard of him, um, Francis Schaeffer, um, George Lapp, Wayne Grudem, who wrote the most popular systematic theology that exists today, and John Piper. Some of y'all know who that is. Faithful gospel preachers within this group. Go to the next one. Post-millennialism. Okay? Amongst this, Eusebius, who I'm going to quote today about this passage, Origen, Martin Bucer, 
Theodore Beza, Matthew Henry, the most popular commentary in English ever, uh, Thomas Goodwin, amazing books, John Owen's unbelievable, Cotton Mather's, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is considered the greatest mind of evangelicalism America ever produced. Um, William Carey, A.A. A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, C.C. Corso. I'm just joking, like whoever's initials are A.A.B.B. Apparently you've got to be post-mill. Uh, Gresham Machen and John Murray. So, like, here's my thing. I mean, roll with me. When you start to add in the book of Revelation in the millennium, and you start to add in Daniel, and you start to add it to the text that we had read earlier, it compounds and complicates it. Would you agree? And that people can land on that differently and still be Christians, still love Jesus and, and love the gospel. Um, I mean, here's what uh, I've heard people say. The millennium is a thousand-year reign of peace that Christians love to fight about. <laughs> right? Like John in the book of Revelation saw all kinds of monsters. And none of them as scary as the commentators who tried to interpret it. Like, this can get tricky. So I'm saying to this, we have a closed hand on the gospel, but the outworking of all of the mechanics of this has to be open-handed. We've got to be generous to one another. 1 Corinthians 13 sets a precedent for us. It says that if I understand all prophecy, but I have not love, I'm a stinking waste. So at the end of the day, even if you understood that China is the dragon coming out of the water, or it is Nero with 666, even if you got all that and you didn't love, you're missing the point. Are we tracking on that so far? We good with that? All right, so let's look back at the passage, Mark chapter 13, 1 through 2. And as he came out of the temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world, covered in gold at the top, most magnificent building these country boys had ever seen, One of his disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Right? All their pomp, all their glory. And Jesus said to him, see these great buildings? There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. While that building looks permanent as your current house is, within a generation, it won't stand. It looks permanent, but it's not. The church looks like it could die at any minute and yet will endure to the end. It's unbelievable. The whole question is uh, prompted by what Jesus responds. Jesus responds with this whole thing, this whole system is coming down. That's a bomb that the disciples are tripping over. They retreat. Look, and as he sat on the Mount of the Olives opposite the temple. So bring up the next slide. I think it's the next maybe two slides from here. So here's the Mount of Olives. We talked about this. This is what the Mount of Olives looked like. Um, If you're looking from the Temple Mount back that direction, go to the next one. This is a view of from a place like Jesus could be looking at the Temple Mount. That's the Dome of the Rock for Muslims, third most holy site built upon the foundations of the Temple Mount. So this would have been similar to Jesus' view looking back to the city. They wait till he's separate to ask him this question because ain't nobody trying to look dumb. Or maybe... They're in the temple, and Jesus is like, oh yeah, this whole temple's coming down. And the disciples are like, Jesus, you can't say bomb on a plane. Like, you, like let's go to the mount, and then we will, we'll walk this down a little bit, all right? And so they come in, and they begin to look at 
this, what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's one of three discourses that Jesus does in Matthew, Luke, and Mark. The, the parallel passage in Matthew 24, Luke 21. The Olivet Discourse is the most complicated of those. You know the other, the Upper Room Discourse, where we talk about communion. The Sermon on the Mount is the other discourse. And then here, the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is, interestingly, has past, present, and future. It has Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king. And there's connective tissue between his discussion here inside of the Olivet Discourse. Now, I argued last week, and this is just a recap, that there are two motifs that he is building here. Two views. One view is the destruction of the temple that is in their future but our past. The second view that I'm going to argue from this text is the end. Now I want to pause. As I just showed these views, there are people that are going to say all of chapter 13 happened in the first century. There are other people that are going to say that all of chapter 13 is happening in the future with some Antichrist. Is it Obama or Trump? I can't remember. Is one whoever, I'll get an email, I'm sure, about who the next one is. Okay, so they're all going to say it's in the, they have a futurist perspective of that. I'm going to argue that it is both. That it is necessarily both. Okay? And so um, the way I'm, I'm going to do that is because all prophecy operates in some way this way. In Isaiah 51, Babylon had destroyed the first temple. They've been taken into captivity and they are returning as exiles. And they talk about this return as a return home, a reunion with God. And then it starts talking about like everlasting language, like everlasting joy and everlasting this. So what there was for that prophecy was an immediate interpretation of them returning back to the Holy Land. But its ultimate interpretation was the people of God returning to harmony with him forever. The, the Bible does this all the time. The Exodus was about them leaving Egypt, but it was ultimately about us separating from the world and returning to God. King David is going to have a son, and that son's going to have an eternal throne. Well, the immediate interpretation of that is King Solomon. The ultimate interpretation of that is King Jesus. I could go prophecy after prophecy about how there was a both an immediate historical interpretation and an ultimate fulfillment yet to come. Does that make sense? I'm going to argue that in this passage, the destruction of the temple is the first thing that is going to be a tribulation that will anticipate the, another tribulation yet to come. That's where I'm going to land on this. And he's going to, I'm going to argue in this passage, weave both near and far. He's going to bring them together. They're not entirely separate, but they are working in concert to talk to us about trusting God. Not entirely separate. They're going to, the, this picture about the destruction of the temple is going to bleed together with the first, the ending of the first age with the destruction of the temple is going to anticipate the ending of the church age we're in in the second coming of Christ. That we're going to know something about his second coming from how he ended the first age. So here's what I, I said last time. It's easy to conflate these, and that creates part of this problem, but the requirement to remedy that is bifocals. Like, we need bifocals. We need to be able to see near 
and then be able to gaze down far. And so the first thing I'm going to say is that there's both within this a sense of the temple and a sense of the second coming. Now, let's talk about the first thing that confuses us when we study this passage. The first thing that confuses us is verse 3 through 13 that I tackled last week. And he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? When we get to the abomination of desolation, you have to understand that he is answering that question. Right. Is everybody with me so far? That is the question that he is answering. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Church, do not join a cult. Let's pray. I know I said last week nobody knows the day or hour, but after much study, I think I got it. Um, it's like, man, it's like, I guess it's time to go to Subway. Um, verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of war, wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. That's you. I don't care if you're drinking the Fox or the CNN Kool-Aid, you should not be alarmed by wars. Come on now. I mean, look at your Bible. This ain't me here. Does it say freak out? It says, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Here's what I'm going to argue. Throughout this passage, he's saying what the end is not. Before he says what the end is in verse 14, he's saying what it's not. There are none of these wars... That, are, that we should look at and have somebody convince us to join a cult because of some particular war, that war has to be the war that precipitates the end. Do you hear what I'm saying? And that's exactly what people do. They fearmonger over the next war trying to get people to follow them. And Jesus is going to say, that's not the end. That's just normal church history. Let me go further. The end is not yet. Eight, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes. That's natural disasters in various places. There will be famines. These are the beginning of birth pain. Some of you have been pregnant. Other you, others of you, it's incapable. All right? And when you got pregnant, usually with your first kid, the morning sickness started long before the baby came. Amen? That's a birth pain. How about this? Do you realize with your first kid... The first time you had a contraction, you went to the hospital and they sent some of you home because the end is not yet. Right? You jumped the gun. Welcome to church history. Verse 9, but be on guard. If there's nothing else that you take from all this except to put your hands up and be on guard against false teachers, I feel like that's maybe my win as a teacher. All right? For they will deliver you over councils, will be in synagogue. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them. Your suffering is for witness. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So if there is among the eleven to 16,000 unreached people groups not a church yet, our job on earth is not done. So get to work. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over... 
Do not be anxious beforehand what to say, but you are to say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. i got to take a rabbit trail. Do you notice here that it's the Holy Spirit giving you the words to witness, and no matter how smooth or how slick you articulate the gospel, people are still going to hate you? Be the best evangelist ever. Be the Billy Graham of our generation. You're not removing the hate of the world. I don't care how slick you are. The Holy Spirit, even authoring your witness, is not sufficient to remove the persecution that comes with preaching of the gospel. Then it goes on, we'll deliver over brother to death and father's child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We do not earn our salvation by endurance. We show our salvation by endurance because it's only the Holy Spirit that would cause you to be able to endure as a Christian through the trials of this life. We talked about this last week and I think it bears repeating. Suffering in this context, these trials, wars, persecution, the things that this is saying is not the end. It's just Tuesday. It's just Tuesday. And that suffering and adversity, which by the way looks exactly like the book of Acts, am I right? looks just like the book of Acts, should not be a trigger that makes us quit, but rather a signpost from Jesus that we're on the right track. Luke says that our suffering about the same passage is an opportunity, not a tragedy. That it's an opportunity for you to witness that your suffering says to an onlooking world... That Jesus is better than a painless existence. That Jesus is better than a painless existence. And we said this. Jesus minus everything is better than everything minus Jesus. And if there's still tribes and tongues and nations to reach, if there's still kingdom to expand, get to work. Keep going. Not the end. So here's the first thing about this passage. 3 through 13, not the end. It's like Jesus saw us coming and knew that we would, before he even tells us anything, do it wrong. Do you ever as a parent, before you actually give instructions to your kid, instruct them what not to do? Welcome to the parenthood of God. Right? Do not touch that thing. The kid reaches out for it. Right? So... This is the context of Jesus answering about the destruction of the temple. So go in 14. Now, but, this is a connected thing. It's a change. But when you see the abomination of desolation, I could do three sermons just on those, that phrase, all right? Standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. Okay. That, let the reader understand, is a Markin commentary here saying that some kid who went to community college could still get this. Like, this isn't supposed to be some complicated thing that nobody understands. He's saying, let the reader under, understand. It's my argument that the people living are going to go through what's going to happen until verse 23. Let the reader understand. What? About the temple. That's the original question. The temple for them was an icon. It was a symbol of their faith. It was a living and present manifestation 
that showed their relationship to God. Their life revolved around the temple. Their calendar revolved around the temple. We talked about this last week. It took nearly 80 years to build. Matter of fact, they just finished building it right before it got destroyed in 70 AD. It took 80,000 workers. Some of the base stones, if you'll bring up the slides, we have some of this in there. Some of the base stones are the size of boxcars and weighed over 100 tons. This is a model of the temple. The temple complex was expanded under Herod. This is not the original temple, which was destroyed in the Old Testament. Built upon the place where Abraham was commanded to offer Isaac. Go to the next one. This temple complex consumed one-sixth of the total city of Jerusalem. It's a perspective of a man next to the foundation stones. Go to the next one. We talked about these stones that because the gold on top when they invaded the city and the temple mount caught on fire, the gold at the top melted and went between the stones. And so after the fires died down, the Roman soldiers literally pry barred the stones where not one stone was left upon another. They didn't know they were fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. They threw the stones down. There's still piles of stones today. And they created these kind of dents in Roman roads. You can still go there to Israel today and see the dents left from them overthrowing the stones. This was a massive complex. I, I don't know what we would equate it to because we don't have, as America, nothing's old here. Have you ever went to Europe? I, think, like, I had people that lived in apartments from the 1500s like that's older than our country right we just don't have like what is something a building that is so sacred that has political and religious and national identity it's definitely not the white house all right what is it the fall of the pentagon i you know i don't know what we can relate this to this is beloved this is a place they pray this is a place they sacrifice this is a place they fellowshiped and and jesus is coming and saying that when you see the abomination of desolation. Now this word in its root, abomination, has to do with loathe, to abhor something filthy, something detestable. Desolation, pretty straightforward, has to do with destruction, devastation, waste. So if we we take what is going on here, we would think something is coming to destroy and to desecrate. That's the idea. Now, this is connected in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse to the book of Daniel, all right? And what is going to happen there? Now, I I don't know where this is, so go to the next slide. We'll show some images of the destruction of the temple. Um, This is an artist's rendering of the armies that surrounded it. In Luke's account, it talks about when the armies are surrounding it. It discusses this. Go to the next one. Um, Go to the next slide if you got it. Maybe not. This is a map of how they invaded the Antonio Fortress, took the temple uh, while they were there, and I'll discuss that in a little bit. Once they, well, I'll say it now. Once they took the temple, they set up the Roman standard and idols, and they sacrificed a pig to it. The fighting broke out there. A fire broke out and burned down the temple mount, and then they went from there to the uptown near Herod's palace and invaded the rest of the city. The city was swollen with people. Um, At the time, there was over a million people in the city for Passover, which makes sense because all the nations had to come back for these major festivals, right? Um, Go to the next slide. Artist rendering of the burning of the temple and what it would look like from the perspective of the Mount of Olives looking down. Go to the next one. This is another artist. You see the great menorah from the Holy of Holies and and from the the altar taken. Go to the next one. Um, 
Titus was the uh, Roman general who took it. It started with great persecution under Nero, and this is why many people understand Nero to be the beast in the book of Revelation. He sent uh, Vespasian to go and invade Israel because they had started a great revolt. As a result of that, um, Nero ends up getting betrayed and dies. Vespasian becomes the emperor. He sends his son Titus to finish the job and destroy Israel. They knew that the Roman army was coming because down out of the Jordan River, blood and bodies flowed. They knew before Rome got within 50 miles of them, Rome was close because they started slaughtering every place upriver of them. It was absolutely devastating. This relief, you can go to Rome today, because Titus captured the city, he was granted a Roman triumph. It's called a triumph. And an ark was constructed called the Ark of Titus um, that you can go to today and see the reliefs depicting how the Romans destroyed the city. You can even go to the next slide. Um, and there's a coin, uh, the Capta Judea, or Judea Capta coin, which commemorates the victory of Rome over Judea. To destroy and to desecrate. Now, this is connected um, to the book of Daniel. Go to the next slide. Um, in Daniel 11.31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress. Profane, same idea, desecrate. And shall take away the regular burnt offerings. Uh, it's recorded in Roman history that... Um, they were starving because they had a siege on the city such that they didn't have a sacrificial lamb to offer um, for the Passover, which killed the morale of the people defe- defending the city and soon after it was wiped out. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Same language. Go to the next slide. So this is where a lot of theologians will talk about the Olivet Discourse connecting to Daniel. And from the time of that daily sacrifice is taken away, the abomination of desolation is set up and there shall be 1,000 290 days, however you want to interpret that. But the concept of that language, abomination and desolation, has its original roots in the prophecy of Daniel. It also has roots for the hearers in another historical event. Okay? So this is where I'm going to get into that this has to do what Daniel's talking about, multiple fulfillments and an ultimate fulfillment at the end of days. The first fulfillment of what Daniel is talking about is not the destruction of Rome. The first fulfillment is 167 B.C., before Christ. Or if you're one of those seculars that say B.C.E., before Christ empire. However you want to do it. All right? In 167, what had happened is, is that Israel was overtaken by Alexander the Great. He dies, and one of his main generals, the Seleucid Empire, starts. They set up a king over Israel from the Greek Macedonian um, type empire. This ruler was Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphany. Literally, he said his name means like in a manifestation of God. He did not love the Jews. So in 167, he forbade and made it against the law to do circumcision, which by the way is kind of a big thing for Jews. Changed the dietary laws. He tried to Hellenize all of them to have Greek thought, Greek customs. He took the temple mount dedicated to Yahweh and he dedicated it to Zeus and set up a statue to Zeus in the temple mount. And on the bronze altar in the temple mount, he took of all animals a pig and slaughtered it on the altar. Now, you don't know much about the Bible, but considering maybe you do, what do you think the Jews think about pigs being slaughtered on the holy altar? Not their favorite day. 
So there's intertestamental books that are not scripture, they're not canon, but they are historical books called First and Second Maccabees. In these books, it recounts how they took back the Temple Mount and how all of this happened. And you know what they call the desecration that Antiochus Epiphanes does when he slaughters that pig? They call it the abomination of desolation. They pick up on this Daniel language and they say what he did was the abomination of desolation. Now for some people that want to work out these calendars, they say that can't be that because of Daniel's timing and all those things. I get that. But that language for the hearers here, if you said abomination and desolation, they would have first thought Daniel and second, they would have talked they would have thought about Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did. By the way, the festival of Hanukkah is a festival of when they cleansed the temple, they rebuilt the altar because you couldn't use it, it was polluted and made new items, and they rededicated the temple is where the Jews get the festival of Hanukkah. That's free, okay? Now, the second use, I think, and the second fulfillment of what is being talked about here, I'm going to argue has to be the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., Listen to this passage. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. I think this is very clearly you had Gentile Roman soldiers who are taking their standard, their Roman standard, and their idols, and they slaughtered, just like Antiochus Epiphanes, a pig to the Roman gods on the Temple Mount. I think that that is the direct interpretation of what that is. Jesus is going to say that when any of this stuff starts going down, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If, by the way, this has to do exclusively with the end times, this makes no sense. Because when Jesus comes again, there is no fleeing the wrath to come. But he's saying here, those in Judea flee to the mountains. It has a Judean, local, historical like element to it. Verse 15, Then let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, to take anything out. Now this makes sense Somewhat for me is from Oklahoma because we have tornadoes. But when tornadoes come, rednecks get on the roof. They don't exit the roof because they want to see the tornado. All right? This makes more sense for Colorado people in fires. You get fire coming, Ignacio Pagosa. Britt, where's the next one at? Um, if you get a fire, tell people, like people in an airplane, don't worry about your stuff, just get off of the plane. Right? You get people that are trying to gather up all their stuff while a fire is coming. The idea is that Jesus is telling them to make haste. When you see this, when you see... Remember, they're asking, what's a sign that the temple's coming down? He's like, okay, this abomination and desolation. That thing. Standing where it's not. Don't go down the house. Don't take anything out. The one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. A cloak was a garment mainly worn at night because like it is here, it's cold in the mountains at night. They didn't wear it during the day for freedom of movement so they could work and things. But you would take your cloak because it would be cold at night. And they say, it would, it's better to be cold, Jackie, and, than to get your cloak and then be killed by the Romans. Like, don't go back and like pack a suitcase. And the Boy Scouts in here just tremble. Right? You're going to have to leave and not have every preparation that you think that you're going to need. 17, and alas for women who are pregnant and for those that are nursing infants in those days. Right? Because when I think of fast-moving people, pregos and pregnant women are not like the first people I choose for a sprint team. I don't care how... Hamster, this, is, this fits. Like, I don't care how good you are at footballing that kid. A nursing mother 
slows down a backpacking trip. Okay? And, and it says, pray that it will not be in winter. All of us get this because some passes here in Colorado don't open until the mountain pass clears. They had what's called wadis that would overflood with water. And it's going to be more difficult in winter. What he's basically saying is, you need the fastest, easiest way out of the city. And for those days, for in those days, there will be such a tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now that's where it kind of goes into some juice that you may say that this isn't just the only tribulation, but a foreshadowing of the tribulation to come. Do you see how that prophetic language, exactly like Isaiah, now it's, it's here in the same way. And that's why I would say that it, it has more to do with that. Listen to what he says. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect. And I know for some of your theology in here, you think this word doesn't exist in the Bible. But the church is called the elect, the chosen of God. You don't have a problem with your preacher. You have a problem with the Bible. The elect, it's God who gathered his church and protected her, whom he chose. The, Bi- the Bible says God chose his church. That's just the Bible. He shortened the days because he knew what would overwhelm the church, and he made it so that his church would survive this tribulation. By the way, he'll make sure his church survives all tribulation to come. That's how sovereign your God is. He shortened the days. Verse 21. And then if anyone says to you, because things are hit, it's just hitting the fan, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Here's how powerful the deception and the stress of this time is. Is that if you are not held in the security of God, you would have followed the deception just like the rest of the world. Can anybody say amen to that? That if God didn't have you, you could be just like some of the worst people you know. You would be deceived like they're deceived, adding LGBTQT alphabet letters to your profiles. We're just like those people. We would be just like the ones that murder babies that lie and steal and covet, such were some, that was us. But God got in our story and changed us, and God is preserving us from future error. Notice here that God preserves His church through His Word. He's giving the Word to them, and He's going to use the Word given to them to keep them. This is awesome. Okay, so in, you, a couple of you know I like church history, that it's kind of like one of those... Eusebius, who I put on the board, is considered by everybody as the father of church history. He wrote like the first church history of the early church. It's super fascinating just to read how Christians engage persecution and theology and different things. Eusebius was the early church father of church history. Okay, Eusebius records that the early Christians, when Rome's army, when in 66-67 AD, the Jewish revolt started and Rome sent their armies down that Christians took this passage literally. Like they didn't take it as a future event. They took it as, all right, it's time. They fled Jerusalem and went to Peleos in Perea. There's historical accounts that the slaughter 
that largely took, that took place here in Rome, Christians in the early church were saved from it because they obeyed the Word of God. That just sounds exactly like all of Christianity to me. That we're saved through the Word of God. Historical account says that Christians fled, did exactly what this passage said. They fled the city and they went to Peleos in Perea. That because of the word of Jesus, they were kept from the destructions. Listen to what he says. Verse 23, be on guard. I've told you these things beforehand and I expect you to do them. So this is a question for me. What were they saved from? Well, outside the Bible, there's a Jewish is not a Christian named Josephus that I've quoted sometimes through this. In his fifth book called The War of the Jews, he was a Jewish general that was a friend of the Roman general, was captured, and actually was at the siege of Jerusalem. The siege of Jerusalem took five months. At that siege, the Romans tried to use him to negotiate with the Jews to surrender the city. And let's just say, the Jews ain't trying to give up the city. Right? So the siege takes five months. Inside of that siege, no food... No water. In that book, it says that 1.1 million people died from either the assault of the five months or the starvation because of supply line and crops that followed. 1.1 million people died. He says that 97,000 people were made slaves. 97,000 people were made slaves. Abomination, desolation. Hard to register, isn't it? When you're sitting in cushioned seats, it's hard to get your mind around it. I get it. God, through his word, kept early through this passage. Now, does that mean that that's all this passage has to do with? That it can't? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying the first immediate context has to be how God used this to preserve his church through tribulation. And it's, it's, it seems like a dress rehearsal for a tribulation to come. I'll grant you that. It seems like that. So, next passage, 24 through 27. This is where Jesus was not asked the question about the second coming, but he uses their question about the destruction of the temple and the tribulation to then give them stuff about the second coming they're not asking for. And that's where I think that he's going here. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, there's some people that will quote from early Roman and Jewish sources that during the destruction of the temple, there was an appearance and signs in the heavens that happened. These are non-Christian people that wrote down this stuff, um, but that's outside of scripture. So I don't know. Um, And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then they will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds. That's like the end of the earth. And from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So because of this, I do not believe the destruction of the temple exhausts all that this prophecy is saying about the end days. Especially if you start looking at 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But I do believe that the destruction of the temple is a dress rehearsal for the tribulation to come. It's a typology, it's a shadow, it's a foretaste. As the first age of the Jews ended with the destruction of the temple and the abomination of desolation, so will the church age which we are currently in 
end in war with the Antichrist in the second coming. I think that 24 through 27 has an intentional flexibility about it because you're like, how are stars falling from the heavens? And I think we can get kind of goofy about this because like if you go out in the night sky and you say, oh, I see a shooting star. You don't literally mean a burning ball of gas is plummeting to the earth and coming. And if any of your friends come to you and are like, that's not a star, it's a meteor. They called everything stars, like planets were called wandering stars. It's just talking about celestial bodies are going to fall and the sun's going to be darkened. It's like, well, if you get a fire over in Pagosa, the sun will be darkened. It's just saying that there is these, let me put it this way, there's going to be graphic, cosmic, astrological upheaval and in the Old Testament literature, that is always an, a sign of God's judgment and impending doom. It's always that way. Anytime there is an astrological, cosmic sign in the heavens, it is an anticipation of God's judgment. So, I don't know what all that means, but what I see and what I find great consolation in is that the arc of history is long but at the end of it, every knee is going to bow to Jesus and every tongue is going to confess him as Lord. What I see and I find encouragement here, and I think no matter where you land on the stuff we talked about before, what I think we can rally around here, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, church, is that Jesus is coming back. And he's going to make all things right. That Jesus is coming back and you will face judgment before your Creator. And if you are standing on your own righteousness alone, that should scare you to death. But if you're standing on the blood of Jesus, you may not know the future, but you know who holds your hand. You will face judgment, and so as lovingly as I possibly can, I'm calling you to repent of your sins and to believe the gospel of the Jesus who knew the future because he is the God-man. He was perfect. He entered human history. He died on the cross from sin and rose from the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection that we all might resurrect with Him one day with new bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. He's coming back to consummate and to fulfill and to finish what He started on the cross. And so, just as with the ascension in the book of Acts when Jesus after he appeared for over 40 days and ascended into heaven, and the disciples are standing there looking on, two individuals come and tell the disciples, why are you standing there staring? Like he's going to come back, just as this describes, in the clouds, just as he went away. He's returning the same way he left. Physical, visible. And he basically says, get to work. Like anytime they start talking about the end times or Jesus' return, Jesus is always saying, we got nations to evangelize. It's always that way. But Jesus, what is the chart? He's like, you got people to witness to. Be preoccupied with that. I would say this. If you're worried about missing the second coming of Christ, from this description, it does not sound like a very missable event. Like, if, if you had an atomic bomb go off in your front yard... Your neighbor lady ain't got to call you and be like, hey, you've got an atomic bomb in your front yard. I don't know if you've looked out. Right? The wall would blow off and the light would blind you. His second coming will not be meek and mild like his first. You ain't going to miss it. All right? Ready or not. So here's 
My takeaway, Christ is coming and Jesus points us to the mission. That there's a shot clock and that knowing the second coming is imminent should challenge us to be holy and to get our butts to work. And in all of the mystery and of all of the changes that's going to happen in human history, trusting. Amen? Let me pray for you. If you're here today and you are by your own sin and unrighteousness unprepared to stand before a holy God and give an account for every thought, word, and deed you've done. If you're here today and you are not ready to meet Him, would you turn? Would you repent? Would you confess your sins and trust the blood that covers all sin? Would you trust the cross? Would you bend your knee now and confess with your tongue now in a way that all of us are going to do one day? Whether we like it or not. Christian, if you're here and you geek out on eschatology and charts and maps, but you don't have love and you're not on mission, would you repent? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring your rule and reign here. Lord Jesus, if there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior, God, the Holy Spirit, would you break them and cause them to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Father, if there's a believer here that is either checked out and ignored the second coming, or one that obsesses over it in an unhealthy way, God, would you center us on the truth of your return in such a way that we might live wholly and circumspectively in this crooked generation. God, do that in your church, I pray. In the strong name of Jesus, everyone said. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing?